Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Acts 20, 25 to 31. This is part of what Paul said to the leaders of the church in Ephesus when he was saying goodbye to them for the last time. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Guard yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Our second reading is from Jude and can be found on on page 1,231, reading the first four verses. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Well, thank you, Claire, for reading for us. And good morning again, everyone. Very good to see you here. Please keep your Bibles open at that second reading, uh, Jude, Jude 1 and uh, page 1231, uh, which we'll be looking at over the next few minutes. Um, but first, let me pray for us as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that the book that we have open in front of us is your living and active word, that you speak still today through it. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to be attentive to your voice and to your instruction and guidance for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a few weeks ago, someone uh, told me of a relative of theirs who was the victim of an attempted mugging. Uh, Two young men threatened him and demanded that he hand over his money. Uh, But instead of doing as they said, um, he shouted some things at them um, and chased them off down the street um, where they jumped on a moped and drove away. And I was very impressed when I heard that story. I think every guy likes to imagine that in a situation like that, they'd be the hero. And it doesn't matter how many of them there are. I'll fight them all off. Uh, But the truth is, I'm uh, almost certain that in the same situation, I would have immediately offered them my phone, my wallet, probably directions if they'd asked for them. I would have been a complete wimp. Um, There's really no way I would have stood my ground and tried to fight them off. 
Um, just in case, because of that, any of you see me as a, an easy target, I won't have any valuables on me on the way out, so don't even think about that. Um, but the story did make me wonder, uh, what would I stand and fight for? And there really aren't many things I would fight for, is the answer. Not many at all. Not my wallet, not my phone, not my car. But I tell you, I'm sure that there is something that I would fight for, and that's to protect the people that are most precious to me. My wife, my kids, my wider family. I'm sure that if I had to, I'd fight to protect them. And I expect most of us would say something very similar, really. We instinctively know that there are some things worth fighting for, but many things that aren't. And so we choose our battles what would I fight for? This morning, we're beginning to look at a letter in the Bible written by Jude. And in it, something he believes is worth fighting for. Not fighting for physically, you understand, but rather standing up for and contending. Something worth protecting and defending. I wonder what you think would be worth fighting to protect. Because we're going to see this morning that Jude says that there is something that everyone who calls themselves a Christian should be willing to fight or contend to protect. Jude wrote this letter because he knew he had found a people worth protecting and a faith worth fighting for. First, Jude shows us in these verses a people worth protecting. Take a look down at verse 1. Jude describes himself there as Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James. But I think he really undersells himself a little there because if you um, spoke of James in the early church, everyone knew you were talking about James, the brother of Jesus, that James. It was always uh, that James. And so Jude, if he's a brother of James, is also a brother of Jesus. You see, Jude, James, and Jesus were all brothers. Um, I guess Mary and Joseph liked the letter J or something like that. Um, But look, he doesn't describe himself as the brother of Jesus. How does he describe himself? a servant of Jesus. He's not about bigging himself up. He's all about serving Jesus. And he writes this letter to serve Jesus by caring for Jesus' people, the church, because he knows they're a precious people. Have a look again at verse one. Jude, a servant of Jesus and a brother of James, two, see how he describes them? Those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. That should almost certainly say kept for Jesus Christ, not by Jesus Christ, but for him, kept for Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful description. Often letters in the New Testament begin rather more simply as kind of Paul or Peter to the church in Ephesus, Rome, wherever. But here, Jude doesn't simply name the church, he describes them, and it's a beautiful description. What was true of these Christians he was writing to is also true of us here this morning. Just pause for a moment and consider how you respond to being described in this way. If you're a Christian, Jude says this of you. You have been called. You are loved by God the Father. You're kept for Jesus Christ. You're like a gift being excitedly kept by God for Jesus. I can't wait for him to unwrap it. How does that make you feel? Unimportant? No. Like a footnote in God's plan? No, of course not. It should make us feel precious and cherished, called, loved, kept, a precious people. And through this letter, this idea of being kept is a key one. Look all the way down, it's over the page, on to page 20, verse 21. Verse 21. Paul writes there, 
Jude writes there, keep yourself in God's love. And verse 24, to him who is able to keep you from falling. We are those who are kept for Jesus. And Jude writes, he wants those, because he wants those who are kept for Jesus to be kept from falling and kept in God's love. Jude wants good for these Christians. Three times in this letter, he describes them as dear friends. And he wants for them all of the blessings of the Christian life. That's why he writes in verse two, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Called, loved, kept, dear, precious people. A people worth protecting. When you know what something's worth, it changes the way that you treat it. A few years ago, my brother Andy was getting married and he uh, gave me the job of looking after the rings on the wedding day. I wasn't actually the best man, uh, which I'm still getting over, but um, I think this was kind of a consolation prize. I could look after the rings on the wedding day. So I took great pride in that job. And um, he gave me the rings in a little um, blue drawstring velvet bag and I, I took very good care of them. Um, kept, kept them on my person the whole time. Um, there was a moment during the service where I thought I'd, forgot, I'd lost one of them because um, I was feeling in my pocket and there was just one there and I was panicked. As it turned out, one, the smaller one had slipped inside the bigger one. So if that ever happens to you, don't worry, that, that can happen. Um, so it was all okay, but I was terrified for a moment because these things were precious. I knew that they were worth an awful lot. Um, you, you know that feeling if someone um, gives you something really valuable? They say, take care of that. It cost me a thousand pounds. You go, oh! Gosh, I better take very good care of that. You treat it carefully. Jude was a leader who knew how much Jesus had paid for the church. In Acts chapter 20, which we heard read earlier on, the Apostle Paul was saying his final farewell to the leaders of the Ephesian church. And he said to them, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. What a price. If Jesus bought the church with his own blood, that tells us how much we're worth to him. And Jude is a church leader who gets that. He sees the church are a precious people worth protecting. We need to see that really clearly this morning because Jude's love makes sense of the way he writes through the rest of this letter. He's gonna say some very strong things against false teachers in the church. But it's not because he's an intolerant, hardline, hostile kind of guy, it's because he's found something worth protecting. His firmness flows out of his love for God's people. They are precious, they are kept for Jesus. They are a people worth protecting. Paul, speaking again to those leaders of the Ephesian church, warned them of something that was now happening in the church that Jude was writing to. Paul warned them saying, I know that after I leave, Savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Paul warned, it's as the truth is distorted, twisted out of shape, that these false teachers draw away disciples after them rather than Jesus, the one that they're kept for. And that's now happening among the Christians Jude's writing to And if the church are a people worth protecting, then the second thing we see is a faith worth fighting for. In verse three, he tells us what sort of letter he wanted to write. Did you see that in verse three? Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, 
He'd have loved to have written and just talked about all the good and wonderful things about being a Christian. He's not a negative kind of guy trying to correct every slightly mistaken theology um, he comes across. He's not kind of Sergeant Keene of the heresy police, eager for someone to put a foot out of line so that he can criticize them. That's not Jude. He wanted to write about the salvation we shared, but, he continues, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. There are plenty of church leaders around today who believe the truth, who hold on to the teaching of the Bible, good brothers and sisters who I love, but who will only preach what's true and won't warn against what isn't. It's what sometimes those of us kind of um, who, who preach describe as preaching the positives. You affirm what's good and true, but you don't criticize what's bad. They agree that there's bad stuff being taught in the wider church, but they say, I'm going to get on with teaching what's true because I don't want to get bogged down in correcting what is false. Now, I can thoroughly sympathize with someone wanting to do that. Correcting what is false can make you feel and look negative and hard line. Who wants that? But I do think that's mistaken. Jesus and the apostles routinely describe pastors as shepherds who both feed and defend the sheep who are the church. It requires affirming what is good, yes, but also calling out what's wrong. And it's driven not by an irritable temperament, but by love for the flock. That's Jude. I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. We're about to see that some were trying to change the truth of the Christian gospel. And so Jude wants them to contend for this faith that was entrusted to the saints once for all. Perhaps you saw a few years ago the story of an elderly Spanish lady called Cecilia Jimenez, who got herself in a little bit of trouble. Um, In her local church was a beautiful, priceless 19th century fresco of Christ, painted by Elias Martinez, an exquisite work, beautiful. But it was beginning to show its age, and so Mrs. Gomez took it upon herself, as a lady in her 80s with a palette and a few paints, to perform a little restoration work. It didn't go well. Um, the painting, once entitled Eke Homo, which means Behold the Man, has now been retitled Eke Mono, Behold the Monkey. It is a shockingly bad attempt to restore a painting. When I first saw uh, the pictures, it it made me laugh in disbelief. Uh, But then looking again at the original and the beauty of it, I began to feel the horror of what she had done, totally ruining a masterpiece. Artwork like that is meant to be received, preserved, and passed on unaltered, undamaged. And in the same way, the truth of the Christian message, which we have perfectly preserved for us in the Bible, is something entrusted once for all to God's people. It's not to be altered or changed or updated, but preserved and passed on. The good news of Jesus contained in the Bible on your laps is something we are not at liberty to change. Any attempt to change or improve on this ruins it. And this is why it matters. It is the truth through which men and women and boys and girls can be saved. It's a faith worth fighting for. So contend, says Jude. Struggle, wrestle, contend for the faith once for all entrusted 
And it's all necessary because of what was then and is still today going on in the church. Take a look down at verse 4. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. They don't come wearing T-shirts that say false teacher. They slip in and they look the part. Neither do they blatantly change uh, Christian uh, beliefs just saying, oh, well, let's throw out this whole idea of grace. No, they don't do that. That would be far too easy to spot. Rather, they change, they twist, they distort the grace of God into something else. And it's the subtlety that makes it so dangerous because it's harder to see. Look at what they're actually doing in verse four. They're changing the grace of our God into a license for immorality. Grace means the free and undeserved kindness of God. And it's at the very heart of being a Christian. We receive forgiveness of our sins and we're saved not because we're good or better than others, neither of which is true, but because God has been kind and generous towards us. It's not based on anything we've done, but on what Jesus has done for us. And that's fantastically good news. If you're not a Christian here this morning and you're wondering why people keep calling Christianity good news, well, this is at the heart of the answer to it. It means that as a Christian, having put my trust in Jesus, I'm forgiven forever. I don't need to live with the fear or uncertainty that if I sin tomorrow or the day after, then God might suddenly withdraw his favor or his um, love for me. No, having trusted in Jesus, I'm secure forever. It's fantastic. But through the centuries, there have always been some in the church who hear that and rub their hands, thinking to themselves, great, means I can go and do whatever I like. I've got a free pass to sin without consequences. And in so doing, they continue to reject the authority of Jesus, our rightful king, refusing to live under his rule and in obedience to him. That's why Jude ends verse four like he does. They change the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. But such people have horribly and dangerously contorted and misunderstood the message of grace. When I truly understand the good news of God's grace, that Jesus loved me and died for my sins so that I could be forgiven, when I truly understand that he bought me at the price of his own precious blood and that he now offers me the gift of forgiveness and eternal life with no strings attached, when I understand that, it changes me forever, as such love only can. It kindles in me a love for him who loved and died for me. And it makes me sad to think that I ever ignored or rejected Jesus, such a good and loving and rightful king. It never leads to treating God's grace with contempt or persevering with the rebellion that sent Jesus to the cross in the first place. It never leads to that. I will still sin as a Christian and I'll fail to remember the grace of God that should make me want to please him. But I'll be sad about my sin, not relaxed about it as these false teachers seem to be. And if I ever use the grace of God as a license for immorality, then I never understood it in the first place. A change in what I love, Jesus, will always lead to a change in how I live, pursuing holiness. 
And so an unchanged life exposes an unchanged heart. These people, Jude describes, accept the gift of forgiveness, but they reject the call to holiness. They accept Jesus as their savior, but reject him as their king. And it reveals a terrible twisting of the gospel. But it might have looked very subtle. A good teacher of the gospel might say to a Christian struggling with their guilt about their ongoing struggle with sin, brother, sister, you're forgiven once and for all, and that's not going to change because you're sin. So have assurance. But a false teacher might say something very similar. They might say, you're forgiven once for all, and that's not going to change because of your sin. So loosen up a bit. Live a little. Don't beat yourself up so much. Go for it. Just as a ship that sails one degree off course ends up hundreds of miles away from where it was supposed to be, when the gospel is just subtly changed, it can end up leading people a long way from the truth. And this lie about the grace of God leads a long way from the truth. Think about this for a moment. If I'm pleased that I don't have to keep God's rules, that shows that I believe his rules are bad for me that they are somehow restricting me from living a full and happy life. And if I think his rules are bad for me, it shows what deep down I really believe about the rule giver, that he doesn't love me and he's not out for my good. To believe that God is a horrible headmaster in the sky, spoiling our fun, is quite literally the oldest lie in the book It's what the devil whispered to Eve in Genesis chapter three. And it is the lie that is now stitched into the sinful nature of every human heart, breeding rebellion against our good, loving, rightful king. The truth is that not all restrictions harm us. In fact, some set us free. A fish is restricted to water, but that's a good restriction because it preserves its life. Without the water, it would die. Having to do my piano practice restricts me from being able to play football instead. But if I want to become a concert pianist, that's a good restriction because it releases my potential to be a great pianist. You see, some restrictions give us life and liberate our potential as humans. What about the rules for life that God gives us? What sort of rules are they? Are they the sort of rules that suppress life and happiness? Or are they the sort that give us life and set us free? Do we have a harsh tyrant of a God or a loving father? To turn the grace of God into a license for immorality betrays the view that God is bad when the truth is he is perfectly, unrelentingly good. One degree, a long way from the truth. And when we understand grace rightly, we'll rejoice in his grace and in his rules We'll accept the gift of forgiveness and the call to holiness. We'll call him our saviour and live with him as our only sovereign and Lord because we know he's good. Friends, we don't have a tyrant in the sky. We have a father who is good. His son Jesus is our saviour and our king and both of those things are good news. And that's why it matters a lot because it is only through believing that that people can be saved. That's why it's a faith worth fighting for. And it is a faith that continues to be distorted today. Like Jude, I would 
so much prefer to stand here this morning and just talk to you about the salvation that we share, the joys of the good news of Jesus. But, like Jude, I have to tell you, there are still leaders in the wider church who pervert the grace of God and deny the authority of Jesus Christ. They often look fine and speak softly and slowly and say much that is true, but they alter or twist or change what should be protected and preserved and passed on. Some people say that because God is love, true, therefore love will win and all people will inevitably be saved without ever accepting Jesus as their king. Not true. That is to deny and change the faith entrusted to us once for all that Jesus is both our saviour and our king. Others in this city say that because God graciously loves and welcomes all people, true, he can't possibly ask us to change in areas of our lives that we cherish. Not true. Saviour and king. But the threat isn't just from out there. It's also in this church, and it's in this heart, and in yours. Because stitched into all of our hearts is that old lie that God is not good and so his rules will harm us. And if we don't contend against that lie, it will take root here, and it will take root here. So how do we do what Jude says and contend for the faith? Well, friends, firstly, we need to be willing to contend for the faith by holding to the true gospel of grace and the lordship of Jesus. And at times, that will mean opposing those who distort or deny those things. Notice that Jude here isn't speaking to pastors, but to all Christians when he says, contend for the faith. Am I willing, when it comes to it, to say not just yes to what is right, but also no to what isn't? Or will I just content myself with preaching the positives? Later in the letter, Jude urges us to build ourselves up in the faith, to know the gospel deeply enough that we'll be able to recognize when someone is subtly distorting it. So will I love my church family by seeking to grow in my understanding of the gospel so that I can be someone who contends for it? Or will I leave that to others? You see, our growth as Christians isn't just about me and my flourishing as a Christian. It's about the church flourishing. We are no more than the sum of our parts. And so as I myself seek to understand the gospel more deeply and truly, I am loving my church family by making myself increasingly someone who can stand for and contend for the gospel. When another Christian I love and respect lives in a way that seems to be out of line with the teaching of the Bible, including if that person is a leader in the church, will I allow myself to follow their example? Well, they do it, so it must be all right. Or will I insist on following Jesus as my only sovereign and Lord in obedience to his word? Will I contend for the faith? Or will I allow it to just go off course? Friends, we don't need to panic about false teachers in the church. God knew that these people would come. Verse 4 says they were written about long ago. And neither do we need to go out kind of on a hunt for these people. God knows who's who and he's able to keep his people from falling. So don't be worried. But we do need to be willing and ready 
to contend for the faith once for all entrusted to us. We need to preserve it and pass it on undamaged. Not because we're hardline, but because we know that the church is precious and the gospel is worth fighting for. We will do that, as Jude does here, when we see the church as Jesus does, as a people worth protecting, bought with the precious blood of Christ, kept for him, and when we see the gospel as a faith worth fighting for. I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith once for all entrusted to the saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great love of your son who shed his precious blood to save us. We thank you for a gospel that is worth proclaiming and fighting for, a beautiful gospel of grace. And we pray that you would give us the conviction and the courage to protect and contend for that faith in our own hearts and in this church and wider. And we pray that as we do that, it would be preserved and passed on to the next generation, that many more in the years ahead may be saved through this true and wonderful word of the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.